and welcome to the Corning Turn Podcast. Today's guest is Justin Deschamps. We've had several phenomenal conversations in the past. I always enjoy talking to him. He's an absolutely brilliant researcher, writer. You may know him from Badlands Media, Vigilant News, Stillness in the Storm, which is what I uh, titled today's episode because I think we are uh, definitely in the midst of a storm, if not one brewing, perhaps. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. He was also at our uh, Cause Fest, Rebels for a Cause, and gave a phenomenal speech there. We were super grateful that he came. And uh, without further ado, how are you doing today, Justin? Great. Good to be back. Oh, you were silent okay hold on ah, there we go I there we you. are <laughs> hey there <laughs> good to be back thanks so much yeah for having thank me. you thanks so much for having me. my pleasure yeah so i thought that it would be interesting to have a little conversation about where we can start with this at least um i had seen you do a thread on twitter recently talking about intrinsic knowledge extrinsic knowledge and uh, i thought it would be interesting to cover that in the scope of, uh, you know, our previous conversations, we've talked about uh, the psychology behind mind control and social engineering. You've written a couple of great Substack articles, which were really fascinating on the topic. And uh, I thought that just in terms of, you know, knowledge and how do we know what we know and uh, how do we know what we know to be true and how do we determine that it's true and uh, that maybe we can talk about uh, psyops and controlled opposition and some of that stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, that yeah. sounds great. There's, there might be a little bit of that happening right now. I'm not sure. So a little bit. <laughs> that, that's my suspicion. Anyway, I I can't say that I know for certain, but it certainly feels that way. Right. So, right. <laughs> so I don't so. know if you want to uh, cover the uh, recap some of the mind control stuff from your Substack first, or you want to dive into the extrinsic. Uh, well, why don't we do this? Because this topic is it's pretty abstract, but it's yeah. so important. Like I think there's a handful of topics that I think are very critical. And if everybody just got the intrinsic versus extrinsic knowledge difference, if they understood what that meant and then knew how to create intrinsic knowledge within themselves, mm -hmm. they would become immune to mind control. It's that powerful and, yeah. it, and much, much more. So um, just to kind of frame the discussion. Uh, so ask yourself, why do you believe what you believe? Like everybody has these beliefs. You can't navigate life without beliefs. Right. You, know, you have to, when you're walking up the stairs, you have to believe that the stair step is going to be there when your foot goes to hit the ground. Right. And that ability to believe helps us navigate the infinite soup of information in reality. So beliefs are critical, but there are different types of beliefs. And certain types of beliefs are, um, are empowering. Certain types of beliefs are not empowering. So the two categories I've broken them up into is intrinsic and extrinsic. Extrinsic are beliefs are something somebody told you that was true, that you put in the category of truth, but you don't really know why. So think about it like uh, uh, the substantiation or the, the foundation of that belief is extrinsic. It's outside of you. It's from an authority. Right. And the other type of belief is intrinsic. You know something is true because it, you have it under your own command. You see the reality that the belief is mapping onto. You can understand how the reality uh, fits the belief, and then you can use your own process of logic, analysis, discernment. You can see evidence. You can be like, yep, yeah, okay, that piece of evidence matches this, so therefore this must be what's happening. And the difference is not trivial, like, trivial at all. So uh, most of the stuff that we learn in school are extrinsic beliefs. 
Right. If, um, you know, they, they do a little bit of intrinsic logic when you're learning math and things like that. It's like, hey, look, there's two apples on the table there. And what happens when you take, you know, another two apples and you put them on the table? Well, you're probably going to get four apples. And most kids, especially at that age, you know, first, second grade, things like this, they're way more intrinsic and want to really know themselves what's going on for the most part. But then as time goes on and things become more sophisticated, you kind of have to take the word of the authority that's telling you what the information is. And what that does is it has a very interesting effect on social systems and our society. Basically means that uh, if, if you're relying on an authority or if you're relying on something else outside of you to determine whether something is true, well, now you're dependent on that thing. And at a social level, it creates a very interesting effect. It basically creates a groupthink effect. And, uh, you know, the point is, is that, and we'll go into all these, I'm sure, the best type of knowledge you want to have is intrinsic knowledge because it's in your command. It's your knowledge. You can vet it yourself. You know that if I take two apples on the table and I add another two apples and I ask you how many apples are on the table, you can look at the table, you can count the number of apples, and you can say there are four apples on the table. And if I tell you, well, there's actually five apples, or those apples aren't apples at all, they're, uh, you know, iPhone watches or whatever, then something clearly not true. Then you could say, well, you know, you might think you know what's happening, but I can see with my own eyes that what you just said is not true because I have an intrinsic grasp of the situation. So, uh, so that's a little bit on the in intrinsic extrinsic right there. Sure. How does one develop uh, intrinsic knowledge? How, how would you? Well, intrinsic knowledge is, it requires, you need, need to be engaged with reality. And basically it's just like a detective, you know, uh, to, not to couch all this in super philosophic terms here, but you know, it, you kind of become your own scientist when you're developing mm -hmm. intrinsic knowledge. Or if you think about it, like I said, just from a, a detective's perspective, mm -hmm. you're, you're trying to figure out what's happening on your own. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't use extrinsic knowledge because if you pick up a book and you're reading a book about something, you know, the book might be the, the theory on, um, I don't know, why uh, cancer can be alleviated through healing techniques, natural healing techniques or something like that. So the, mm -hmm. the premise or the initial statement that encapsulates an argument is often something that is extrinsic. It's a declaration that this thing is, uh, that I'll to, to use an example, that cancer can be alleviated through natural juicing techniques, something like that. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you wanna take that initial extrinsic suggestion, that statement that you heard from teacher, that you read in a book, that you saw on Twitter, it doesn't really matter because we're swimming in all these de declarative statements. And you just wanna internalize it and say, okay, well, what is this saying? Let me first, let me make sure I understand what the statement is saying. Then after I've mapped out, I think what the understanding of that statement is. And often, if you're going to use something we've also talked about before on your show is uh, multivariant logic. So what multivariant logic is, you ask, you look at the statement or whatever the, the thing is you're trying to analyze and you ask yourself, how many different ways can I interpret all the things that I'm looking at? And you try to map all that out as much as possible. And that the reason you do that is because the reality is finite mm -hmm. and there's only so many ways to look at something. And if you look at all of the ways, then one of those ways is going to be the right one. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is a little sidebar on multivariant thinking is that our brain does not just work by absorbing true knowledge. So if you told me, hey, Justin, this is a true fact, 
and let's say it was true and you even supported it with evidence mm-hmm. the the stability of that fact in my own mind is going to be limited if i only have just the true version of the slice but if i have mm-hmm. all the other wrong versions that are juxtaposed next to it mm-hmm. well now i can not only see the right one but i also see all the wrong ones and i see how, why and how they are wrong depending mm-hmm. on how much philosophizing i've done on the subject so right um, so yeah do you want to jump in on anything yeah, I do. Well, I think it's a really uh, interesting com- conversation, especially in light of a lot of what I'm seeing right now, which uh, I've talked a little bit about this, but I kind of feel like we're seeing a resurgence of uh, a new iteration, if you will, of kind of this uh, enlightenment versus counter-enlightenment movement. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of that currently. Mm. Uh, yeah, that, that yeah, seems... I, yeah, I think so, but can you define what you mean by enlightenment versus non-enlightenment? Sure. So the enlightenment period, you know, this is really kind of what the Constitution was born out of, you know, it was that time period. But it was a period of, I think this is very important for people to understand, and this is why I, I bring it up in this context, is because uh, it was what gave us really science, you know, the scientific method, not necessarily, also, interestingly enough, scientism as well, um, you know, very much arose from the counter-enlightenment movement. But the idea of the enlightenment movement was very much this idea of uh, reason and logic um, and, uh, of course, a lot of, you know, the uh, American modern political theory comes out of the Enlightenment period. But it was also predicated on uh, the notion that we do have some presuppositions that are rooted in faith. And particularly, uh, you know, many of the Enlightenment thinkers, and particularly, uh, you know, when I, I'm thinking in terms of uh, the founding of the United States of America, we're talking about faith as it pertains to the Judeo-Christian values. Now, I know there's a lot of pushback, and this is part of the counter-enlightenment movement that I'm seeing on that term, Judeo-Christian. You know, they say it's a geopolitical construct, and uh, you know, I don't dispute that. You know, that it may have been used, it may be used that way in certain contexts. Uh, but I do believe that there is an Old and New Testament in uh, the Bible, and that is <laughs> so. That that's what I mean by Judeo-Christian: the values that are pertained in there. Um, and so, but then the Counter Enlightenment was very mystical. Uh, so it was a lot of you know, it was people like uh, like Hegel, um, you know, who were very uh, they wanted to create scientific methodology that were very uh, hermetic and alchemical in. Uh, in their process, right? Uh, in fact, that's what Hegel ta- said when he talked about the, his uh, notion of the dialectic. He refuted uh, Kant and Plato's notion because he said that they were too abstract. It was too intellectual. I'm paraphrasing, but you know, he said that it couldn't be used as a process. It wasn't a methodology. And he wanted something that would advance the historicity of man. And of course, you know, the way he saw that was to, uh, you know, advance it towards an omega point, which for him was the state equal equaling God. Uh, right. that, you know, so, uh, but I'm seeing that currently. And the reason why I think it's interesting in light of this conversation is because uh, there is this pushback against, uh, well, I, I'm seeing it on both sides, but there seems to be a pushback against the, um, enlightenment in general, and they're uh, talking about how, you know, it's uh, rooted in this logic, but therefore it has no foundation because, which is, I think it's inherently missing kind of the, because it was a combination of the two. And, but you do need some empiricism. I mean, I don't know how you can't have everything based on just faith and just uh, belief systems. 
And I don't think you can, as human beings, I just think that we can't really know anything if we tilt too far one way or the other. I think that was kind of, you know, the system we have in this country, in my opinion, is very far from perfect. I think it's quite flawed, actually. It was created by human beings, so there, there's no, no surprise there that it would be flawed because humans right. are surprised we're flawed. Um, but I, I think that one of the things that really got right was that in order for a system to work, it has to encompass both. Mm-hmm. Um, because, because as humans, we don't, we can't be secure in anything. And that doesn't mean we're right, but we can't be secure in anything that doesn't encompass both our empirical knowledge and evidence, as well as an element of, uh, you know, principles that are rooted in some sort of faith or belief system. Right. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, well, it's interesting you mentioned that and it, and it kind of ties in with what we were just talking about with extrinsic and intrinsic, because mm-hmm. it, it, I would put uh, dogma or doctrine or faith, even in the category of extrinsic knowledge, you, you believe it. And from a faith perspective, I would define mm-hmm. faith as something you believe to be true, but you're actively attempting to substantiate, you're vetting it, you're seeing mm-hmm. whether or not it works for you. You know, right. That's my definition of faith. I think that's a, a good definition of faith to work with. Sure. I would not say that the the version of faith where you just, you say, oh, I have faith in this thing and that's why I blindly believe it with a religiosity. Mm-hmm. That's not, I don't think, a good version of faith, just to clarify. Um, and when when you're a scientist, this is the funny thing about science, and and this is why they don't probably teach epistemology and philosophy in science anymore. Mm-hmm. I went to school for physics that we talked about. I didn't learn a lick of philosophy, and I went to school for physics. Wow. It was all very dog scientism dogma, <laughs> you know? Wow. Um, yeah, it's, you know, kind of strange. And this was before wokeism, too. Though. So I went to college in 1999 is when I started going. Um, well, I, I went to college a few years before you uh, at I started in uh, 96 and it was quite woke. I was a philosophy major. I actually started out as a neuroscience major and that whole field was super woke, which was strange because I thought it'd be hard science, but the psychology was all very woke. And then uh, I switched to philosophy and uh, yeah, it was super woke. My my thesis advisor was obsessed with Foucault and I remember, (laughs) yeah. And I was like, you know, even if I, even if I thought there was any merit to, uh, you know, postmodernism. I just thought he was like uninteresting, uneventful. Like there was nothing profound. So I didn't understand why he he wanted us to. He wanted to have a part of the philosophy requirement, but that be that you take all four years of Foucault. So Foucault one on one, all the way four. Oh my four, god. Four, four. Um. So the one thing though, I will give Foucault credit for is he did kind of warn about a uh, scientific dictatorship. Mm. I I don't I can't quite tell if he was in favor of it or not but he did right. warn of it nonetheless so right right yeah well i mean the you know for a scientist has to deal with the fact that his interpretations on his observations are subject to interpretation right. you know um in mod- and a lot of science that i've been exposed to um there is a kind of uh dogma associated with it which is mm-hmm. that we're going to do this experiment right. and we're going to see what kind of data we get and the way to interpret that data, we've already figured out. Don't bother looking into it. You know, maybe here's a little variation here and there, but you really shouldn't try to penetrate too deep the epistemological foundations or the substance or, or the why is it that we are interpreting it that way, you know, authoritarians of science. And I think that is the the kind of dogma. That's the extrinsic component of science. 
But if you really want to understand something, you have to you have to ask the most bottom questions possible and go through that epistemic regress. And you know what epistemic regress is for those who don't know is you're just trying to figure out well why is that interpretation the correct one? Why would I view that that way? Right. You know, um, to 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 give it a uh, a substantive basis. If I took baking soda and I took vinegar and I combine them together, we're going to get a, a, a gaseous reaction. We're going to get carbon dioxide spewing out in a you know, big volcano type situation like we've seen. And the interpretation on that would be something like, well, what we have here is we have the bicarbonate of soda mixing with the acid because they are two different acid and base. That is going to produce a, you know, a volatile reaction that's going to release a lot of gas. Mm-hmm. And it sounds great. And it's probably the case, but the uh, the intrinsic knowledge seeker in us has to say, well, how do we know everything you just said is actually happening? We mm-hmm. have to take each of those little pieces that was just laid out in the argument and try to unpack them and, and see if we can, using a process of definition and substantiation, say, well, what do you mean that they're, they're acid and base? What is acid and base? Well, acid and base is just a taxonomical system we use to try to categorize the different types of reactions we see in chemistry. It's Mm -hmm. not like an intrinsic part or it's not a built-in part of reality itself. It's our way of interpreting reality. It's a map. It's not reality itself. It's not the territory. So um, when you use an intrinsic basis, when you use an intrinsic technique, you're trying to get to first principles. You're trying to get to the, the bottom of the data set and say, okay, well, how do I know that my interpretation is the right one? And are there other interpretations? And like I said, if you use a, a um, an exhaustive process, I've started calling it omniological because it's, you know, omni all mm-hmm. you know, process study of all things. Sure. And when you do that, you, you, you become possessed of all the rich data set. And now you, when you make your conclusion, you can fact check it. And the, the analogy I like to use is like the difference between uh, a master chef and so mm-hmm. just using a recipe online that they found, you know, if you, mm-hmm. a master chef can take the recipe they've carefully worked out or might have received from some other colleague and know how to tweak it if an ingredient that they have is missing or do all sorts of things to it to still produce the effects that they want. So you get mastery when you have intrinsic, deep and in, in epistemal uh, intrinsic knowledge of something. Uh, but if somebody who's just following a recipe, they don't, you know, if something deviates away from the recipe, they don't really know what to do with it. And mm-hmm. they might be able to vary a few things here and there, but there's not any guarantee that they're going to be able to have a lot of control over the end result. So, right. you know, from a, w- one of the things I like to think about when we think about intrinsic knowledge is that you're, you're the, you're mastering the captain of the ship. You know, if we think about it that way, if like mm-hmm. if you, you can navigate beyond just what your navigator is telling you. And, or if you're driving, you can know where you're going beyond what the GPS is telling you, something like that. And that has a tremendous amount of power. So. For sure. So ultimately we would ideally want a combination of both, right? We would want uh, extrinsic knowledge that is a feeding intrinsic knowledge, but then intrinsic knowledge becomes kind of the barometer of which you measure the extrinsic knowledge up against. Precisely, because the way it works is it's a process, just like um, everything in reality, I would say everything's just on a spectrum. And mm-hmm. so extrinsic knowledge is like the the initial step. And mm-hmm. then as you digest it, think about it, philosophize, use your philosophic mastication muscles, so to speak, then you you get to a point where you have intrinsic knowledge, you know it coherently. And right. um, 
you know, but to, earlier we were talking about uh, the enlightenment and the, and the mm -hmm. counter enlightenment. I wanted to comment on something you said because at the base of all of our knowledge is this question of, you know, fundamental questions that uh, a lot of the enlightenment thinkers were talking about, like, well, what is the ultimate nature of reality? Um, you know, what, who, how can I really prove anything? Of course, uh, Descartes' famous uh, statement, you know, I think, therefore I am, is his attempt right. to try to get the most epistemologically verifiable foundation so that he can build arguments on top yep. of that and have a, a coherent, intrinsic, and, um, and comprehensive argument structure for whatever he was trying to study. So the, the counter-enlightenment, if I understand it correctly, is it's almost an attempt to try to pull the carpet out from under everything and say, well, despite the fact the best explanation we have to work with is that we live in a, uh, a theistic universe created by a supreme being, to use that terminology, mm -hmm. um, the, we don't want to do that. We want to try to ignore that, and we're going to come up with something else, that we live in a kind of Cartesian um, you know, material universe where there's space and there's objects on that space. And you know, mm -hmm. we're not going to deal with the question of how the hell that started. We're just going to mm -hmm. start from there and build up from there. And, um, you know, and I think what that does is that there's a, there's a, an occult aspect to that because mm -hmm. I think a lot of the, you know, as I'm sure you would agree, the, the, the underlying motive for a lot of the secularization of our society is that the people pulling those kind of strings have an agenda. They want to take God out of the equation. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily just because they hate, you know, the, the Catholic church, although that might be part of it. <laughs> you know, it's because it has a very powerful effect on their ability to control people, society, and ultimately the course of humanity. I, I absolutely agree with that. Although I would say what I'm seeing now is actually uh, them using religion, uh, you know, because most religions have been mystified to some degree, right? I, I think we can agree there, there's been, uh, like in Judaism, there's Kabbalah, there's the, uh, I, I mean, we can go through, there was, uh, the Zoroastrians, like there's always, there's this like version of the, uh, you know, and again, I, I don't claim to have the, to be the arbiter of truth. I don't know what the, the ultimate truth is, you know, I'm just saying there tends to be kind of these foundational religions. And then there's these mystified versions of these religions. And I think what we're seeing now is, and it's cloaked in what looks like traditional religions. Uh, but this is typically how fascism works, right? You go within the system in with the intention is, and I, I, I agree with you, the ultimate intention is to overthrow. Um, and I think that they, their means of doing this is through uh, dialectical sublation. So mm -hmm. they, they infiltrate, they create schisms. And then the hope is that the, uh, the, the, dialectical pole will act as a uh an agent to create a the, the schism within and they will then you know subsume each other <laughs> and then ultimately you know both are overthrown and uh are wiped out so they can emerge with their you know i mean they they've made no secret about their goals being a uh one world uh you know not just governing body but of course a one world religion and that one world religion i do not think is going to be uh christianity judaism or muslim or you know right. any of those uh yeah so i did a 
Um, I did a podcast on Lucius Trust. And of course, you mm-hmm. know, uh, Alice Bailey was a disciple of Madame Blavatsky and uh, who was the, uh, she started the Theosophical Society and popularized the New Age movement. But of course, let the plan of love and light work out. This is very much the theme of the New Age movement. And it sounds wonderful. Uh, but in my estimation, this looks very much, uh, again, like a dialectical ploy because it's kind of the, you know, the left hand is this overt Satanism that we're seeing a lot of coming to the forefront now. You know, it used to be much more uh, subliminal and kind of covert, but now we're seeing Cosmopolitan share how-to articles on uh, abortion abortion rituals as a right. you know child sacrifice. Right there, it's an actual manual. Here's the how-to. So this is no longer a theory. They they're flat out in your face saying, "Here, this is what we're doing, and we're going to show you how." So, uh, but the right hand of that, I would argue, is kind of couched in this Luciferian type of, you know, he's the light bearer and he's really just freeing us and illuminating us with this great knowledge and, of course, the love and light uh, slogan that you hear from a lot of the new agers. And I, you know, I will just place this caveat. I'm not, you know, I'm not condemning all people who, you know, subscribe to these sort of things. I think most people, uh, maybe not all, but I, I, I'm not saying evil doesn't exist, but I think most people are good people and they genuinely, you know, believe what they believe and they, they think they're doing good or following a good path. Uh, but ultimately it looks like it is a right-hand path that is much more deceptive couched in very positive terms, uh, but ultimately it leads to the same place because if you look at Lucius Trust, it is very much, at least it appears to me, as the kind of religious underbelly of the UN. It's a consultancy to the UN. You know, she has a whole bunch of schools like the Arcane School, Mm -hmm. uh, the World Goodwill, and, and these are all working directly with the UN. Of course, the UN seems to be driving a lot of their whole 17 sustainable goals. And I think we flashed up the UN 100. I don't know how much you've been following that, but the UN 100 is imagining the world uh, 100 years from uh, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 1945 it started and then uh, it's remaking the world the age of global enlightenment and they're doing this in conjunction with Boston Global Forum it seems to be Michael Dukakis former uh, governor of of, uh, Massachusetts who's helming this and he's written this book and it's all about creating an AI world society which looks to me a little bit like a cyber Satan Um, (laughs) uh, and of course they want the hub to be in Ukraine and they're building all these other little 15-minute cities and city 40s and all these different digital virtual worlds that will be connected to, uh, you know, their main hub in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So uh, all this to say, though, that that's, you know, it's kind that seems to be kind of how uh, they're playing this. And I, I'm seeing other things crop up where there are these, they do look like, uh, you know, I mean, I can't, I can't be certain, but it looks kind of like psyops you know things like the uh and this is not i I don't have any problems with things like christians and nationalists but this christian national movement (laughs) is a little different you know um and uh i'm seeing certain things like that or like there's a new organization that's uh i don't know if you're familiar with arc jordan peterson's arc yes yes the alliance for responsible citizenship and it seems to be you know, couched in this very, uh, a cloak of we're doing this, uh, you know, under an umbrella of Christianity. And this is very, uh, you know, faith forward. And it's uh, all about reviving uh, uh, the values of Western civilization. 
And uh, then when you look into it, the words just sound very like Marxist type of, uh, you know, bat signal. Really? Very much so. Um, you know, they use the word transformation a lot. They talk about a better story. What does that sound a lot like? That sounds a lot like a great narrative or a meta narrative. So there's just a lot of these buzzwords. I've done a little digging. I, I am going to release a, an episode on it, but I've done a little digging and the funding does seem to be directly tied to the World Economic Forum. So to me, it just looks like a right hand arm of the same kind of, but only it's appealing to the socially conservative and religious right. Um, right. That's not to say that they won't do any good. And that's just it. You know, I, I think oftentimes, and this is tied back to this whole concept of extrinsic and intrinsic knowledge, because I think, and controlled opposition, because oftentimes people want to, you know, they're, they're, they're constantly looking externally at a source and they want to glorify or vilify the source, but not adjudicate the information itself. And mm -hmm. even the most, uh, evil or you know stupid of sources it's not going to be completely false you know there there will be elements of truth in there um and there can be elements of uh even even the things that are wrong that can be you know uh, valuable so i i think yeah so i just wanted to say i i'm not saying that you know in any by any means do i think jordan peterson's never done any good or that right. you know that this organization is going to be all evil that's not what i'm saying i'm just saying that you know the a lot of the players behind it look like the same you know billionaires whose goal is to put us in a essentially a digital gulag and mm -hmm. uh you know only it's presented in a way that's much more appealing to uh the you know the political right, the dissident right, or, and the religious, socially conservative uh, groups. That's, I mean, those are just two examples. Uh, but I, I think they're important because we, when you talk about things like intrinsic and extrinsic knowledge, we start to, because we are herd animals and because it is important to us to feel a sense of belonging, and, it, and, and I think for survival reasons we do that, um, right. then we start, you know, we, we anchor to things. So we see something and it may anchor to something that we do have some intrinsic knowledge pertaining to. Uh, and then we kind of look outside and then we, we kind of anchor onto it without really having a full context of what that is all about and how much do we really know about that. We may know about, you know, one kernel, um, but that's, you know, that's how I think, in my opinion, people get very misled um, and also get swept up because they do want a sense of belonging. They want community. They want to and they want they want to feel like they're right. And if all these other people are are doing it, then it must be right. So. Right. Of course, especially when Jordan Peters is on the ticket. I mean, come on now. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, how, how could he be wrong? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I you, there's a lot you brought up there. And I think uh, passing that through the lens of our conversation uh, is going to be really interesting to talk about because you know the arc thing is a perfect example i haven't had the time to look into it i just heard him mention it on a few podcasts that i've heard mm -hmm. and it sounds interesting on the surface but my appraisal of it is at the extrinsic level i haven't done anything other than listen to him pontificate and de make declarative statements about it mm -hmm. um, and what's important at, like you were just saying is you who have gone in and looked a lot more at it your initial pass at it reveals some terminology and some concepts that the, you know, some not so great people out there like the World Economic Forum and the UN seem to be using the same basic type of, you know, terminology or conceptual framework. And therefore, as it's any good detective would do, would it not at least one supposition or theory on that be perhaps that this is 
some type of you know psyop on the other end of the pole and then you add the the data point of what you were just talking about the dialectic of controlling both ends of the pole to steer what's happening in the middle that is absolutely a technique that the powers that be have used and are using right now to manipulate consciousness in profoundly effective ways so the the initial pass is exactly and your deep dive was you know exactly where we want to go but then we have to go even deeper and you know and actually have the deeper you know okay well what does he mean when he says story or what does you know what is the substance of this idea of story mean um is this the diagram of the the dialectic right here you want to talk about it a little yeah bit? sure um so a lot of people attribute thesis antithesis synthesis to hegel uh mm -hmm. that was actually ficke uh, john gottlieb ficke was describing kant's uh notion of the dialectic and hegel actually said that it was abstract negative concrete and uh, the negatives because he felt that this was a little it wasn't enough of a process you know, as I was talking about the the spiral to the omega point, and he said that um, the so the negative in his it was a German word that he used. The word was Afhaben, so it essentially means sublation, but it's a very oxymoronic term. In mm -hmm. if you translate it, because it means to tear down and cancel while simultaneously lifting up and preserving. And this is, of course, where we get the notion of Apaven de culture, uh, which the Frankfurt School very much codified. And uh, I, I think many today have experienced or at least witnessed cancel culture. And that is yeah. what that translates to. But it is this idea that you have this uh, abstract notion that presents itself and uh, it, it then has something that counters it. And the countering of it, a, a great analogy really is the Ouroboros because it's the snake mm. eating its tail, only it is in this spiral type of uh, process and it subsumes itself. So it, it gets sublated, but it becomes, he talks about it becoming a part of it. So it's not like it completely disappears, which is what you see with Afhaben to culture, right? It's a, mm -hmm. it lifts up while it tears down. That's what Afhaben is. Right. And then of course it's the concretization. So people oftenly translate that to being uh, the synthesis. And you know that, that probably is a, a, a fair kind of uh, reductionistic type of simplified translation, but it is a little bit more complicated than that because it is an alchemical process. And so it really is this uh, hybridization that is advancing the historicity of man, essentially, you know, and of course, uh, Marx evolved this, he was very influenced by Hegel. And of course, he talks about, you know, history is to uh, use uh, men and then discard them. And, you know, uh, he Heidegger talked about this concept very often, I think people ignore him in the equation very often. But um, I, I, maybe it's just because it, the German translation is so kind of yeah, very. It's very difficult to read, and who knows how accurate the translation really is. But he, I think, he talks about this concept a lot, and he talks about, of course, you know, the. Uh, uh, I think it's Gewendewald. I don't know how you say it in German, but you know, uh, thrownness. This idea that man is thrown into the world, and uh, you know, then he's uh, Sartre talks about it too. But the the Heidegger was talking about the the term thrownness uh, coming from, mm -hmm. again, this German notion, which I, I think that's another thing. Language is just so powerful and we often don't recognize how much gets, uh, and I, I think intentionally sometimes a little bit uh, contorted in translation. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
So, mm-hmm. but he talked about, and this is again, I, t- the reason I bring them all up is because it's a very Gnostic type of view, uh, you know, that we are kind of trapped. And then this goes back to uh, the, the notion of uh, like the Lucius Trust, this idea of uh, the light bearer is going to illuminate and save us because we're all trapped and we're limited from the real esoteric knowledge that we could uh, achieve. And uh, in my opinion, really, the uh, esoteric knowledge is these, uh, you know, parasite class who is uh, dumbing us down and withholding knowledge from the masses. And it's not the knowledge so much they're withholding. It's the ability for us to use critical thinking skills in order to ascertain that knowledge and to, uh, to yeah, to, to learn, really. is that's a, right. I think that that's what they've done, so... I completely agree. And, um, you know, to dovetail off of that point, you know, knowledge is a double-edged sword. It, mm-hmm. Knowledge in the right form can liberate you. It can You mm-hmm. can use it to decode reality, to ge- generate more knowledge. That's what intrinsic knowledge is all about. Right. But without the right perspective, if you have a lot of extrinsic knowledge and you don't, your critical thinking muscles and your philosophic abilities are not well-developed, then knowledge is a prison. It traps you. Yeah. It's like a you know, it's like cow, what are they cattle herders? I forget the term, but you know, the thing that drive cattle from one place to another. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very similar to that. And, and I think that's shepherd, what right. Yeah. Shepherd. Exactly. So, you know, you're, you need, this is the interesting thing. If we, if we look at it from a psychological development perspective, when you come into this world as an infant, you, you, don't, you can't even decode reality for much of anything at all. So the first several years of your life, you're building your own intrinsic perceptions. You're looking at things from different perspectives. You're rotating objects like are all around to try to see all the different angles, which is very similar to that spiraling uh, process that you were talking about. Right. Because you know you're told that an object is this, and then when you, if you're a toddler, what do you do? You shove it in your mouth. You choose something <laughs> different about it. You know, so it's with these abilities to kind of what I think of like an omniscopic appraisal. You're trying mm-hmm. to see all the different angles and our, mm-hmm. our human nature is designed for that. That's one of the things that has a sidebar on this, but it's a critical one. When when you're raising your kids and your kids do things you don't want them to do, it's mm-hmm. not because they're just trying to be disobedient. It's because they have an imperative biologically to create a coherent and complete map of the world. Mm-hmm. And so if you tell them this is the ideal, they're going to probably take your word for it. But now they're going to want to see how that ideal is contextualized and everything else in their reality. And that's what they need to do to be intrinsically and, co- and competently able to navigate reality properly. Absolutely. Um, but then as time goes on and you become more sophisticated and abstract, your ability to really uh, understand things intrinsically kind of goes down. And now you're more in like the extrinsic phase of life where around uh, four or five years old, your ability, you start to get a lot more information from your parents in a declarative way. Like this is that, that's the way this works. This is the way that works. And you have to kind of just take it and right. roll with it. And if you don't accept it as such, then you can't function so socially in that environment. Right. And that's really the key. Knowledge is one part you navigating the world at a, at a personal level. Knowledge is also a social mechanism. Mm-hmm. You, and what I call knowledge is the information data sets in your brain that are iconized or in your consciousness, we want to say brain, but they're iconized, meaning that, you know, if I say that two plus two equals four, that concept is itself can be rendered into an icon that then I can use it as a lens to see other things in the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that we, we, you know, cognitive bias is a part of that. Once you've been possessed of a concept, 
you can now kind of see it in your reality around you. Right. So at a social level, you have there has to be some social foundation. We have to agree that when we go to dinner, we're going there is a place where we're going to eat dinner, that there's this thing called dinner that exists that, you know, right. so there's all these like givens that have to be accepted. And if you don't accept those, you can't participate. Right. And then that generates all this, this, uh, all the social psychology around feeling ostracized, feeling like you're missing out, which is a very powerful motivator at limbic system, midbrain level, which is then going to want to drive you to go, you know, do various things. So the point, the reason I'm saying all that is this, what they've seemed to have figured out. And I, I don't know when they figured this out. My theory is that this is very, very old, this idea we're about to talk about, but they figured out that if they tell people that they have to believe certain things and they don't necessarily substantiate them and they get a lot of people to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, now what you have is you have a whole herd of cattle being guided along a way. And now all of your subtle, very powerful social psychology that has an incredible ability to motivate you at an emotional, somatic, you know, affective level is going to guide you in ways that you're not even necessarily consciously aware of, especially when you're young. Um, and so that's kind of the point is that they they want to use knowledge as a guardrail, as these these girders that move you along. And on the other side of that is the no man's land, that the what's outside of the garden, to put it in biblical terms. There's it's danger. It, there's problems. And you're so motivated to stay out of that place that you want to stay back into the herd. And if you never learn how to develop your own critical thinking faculties then mm -hmm. that's where you'll stay. And you won't even know you're trapped in that situation. So it's incredibly powerful to know how to take those guardrails off and actually wander off into the place where people don't like to go necessarily, because that's where the, the real empowerment comes from, wandering into the desert, so to speak, figuring out that you can survive out there on your own, building those intrinsic muscles, building those critical thinking faculties, and then using that to vet all the things that are happening in your society. Because the other thing, and I'll kick it back to you in a moment here, is that they learned how to do, is that, like you said earlier, that this is something that's that took me a long time to grasp, but they actually use a lot more truth in their false narratives than you might think. 90% is what I've heard from uh, people who work in the military and psychological operations. It's 90% truth, 10% lie. Yeah. Exactly. And even I would actually say it's all the truth. There is nothing but truth out there. So now that, let me define that for a yeah, moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when I say there's nothing but truth, I mean, what do we, what do we mean when we say truth? Well, there's the knowledge truth as in, well, uh, if I say two plus two equals four, and I point to an example of two apples on a table and two apples on another table, and I ask you how many apples are in the room, you can use your mind to create an impression and a map of that territory. And then by comparing the map to the territory and having a juxtaposition, you can say, well, the map is true because it, there's actually four apples on the table. Or if, if I tell you two plus two equals five, and then you go and compare it to the reality, you can say, well, that map you just gave me and told me is correct is not because there's a, a juxtaposition doesn't line up. So from a factual knowledge-based perspective, when we say something is true, we mean the thing that we have in our head that we're calling a fact or a theory or a statement matches reality. Yeah. That's, that's what we mean by true in that sense. But the truth, the grand all-encompassing truth, that's a little bit harder concept to pin down. And what I'm defining as the ultimate truth, and, and what I mean by all of it is truth, 
is that it's all raw reality information. You know, if you if you're dealing with a con man and he's trying to con you into to buying some snake oil, you might say, well, the snake oil isn't what he claims it to be. And you're right, it isn't. But if you were omn omniscient, then you would see the whole truth of the situation, which is the fact that the, the snake oil is real. There's actually a bottle with the word snake oil on it that has something in it. It's just not what the snake oil salesman says it is. And so if you think about it from that perspective, everything is truth. All the cabal ever can do is just take the raw reality that is around us and arrange it in ways that are distorted so that we create false impressions in our mind. And those false impressions, those are the things that are untrue. And that's more of the like, you know, the 10% truth you, or falseness that you spoke to earlier mm -hmm. in, in that situation. So why is that important? It's important because if you're intrinsically minded, mm -hmm. you can see the difference between, you know, to use Plato Caves analogy, you can see that you're not looking at reality. You're actually looking at a bunch of shadows on a cave. Right. And once you see the real truth behind the, the impression or the, the raw reality that's behind the description of the map, then the map is gets redefined. And now that thing that we call false properly contextualized becomes true. Because mm -hmm. if I, if you tell me a lie and you're like, you know, Hey, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a 250 pound weightlifter. That's a man, <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> I'm going to say, okay, well, that's not true. And when I've properly contextualized that statement is not true. What happens to it? Now it becomes a true statement of fact. That is a description of reality. So, that's the one of the powers of intrinsic knowledge. And from a cabal perspective, to get back to what we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. they they try to craft their narratives as close to the truth as humanly possible. Yep. Because at some deep level, we actually can't help but creating intrinsic knowledge. It's just we don't necessarily do it fully and completely. And we don't have our muscles aren't strong enough. So they so you have they have to create a, a conceptual prison to use those terminology. Um, in a way that is as much true as possible, because that truth power is going to have a lot of intrinsic weight to it. And that when a, from a feeling or a somatic perspective, it's going to in our gut, it might feel true for various reasons. And because of that, we'll be led often led down that trail. The other thing they do is they take away our time. So it takes mm -hmm. time to develop intrinsic knowledge. You have to actually yeah. think about things. You have to use your, your attention and put it in the right place in the right way to decode things in reality properly to see through lies. Yep. And because of the social tension between the demands to take the time to do that and the demand to follow the herd, well, if they make life so busy that you have more time to focus on following the herd because... You got, you know, 60 different text messages you got to deal with or all these other things on a cell phone, then you're uh, never going to take the time to develop, you know, see what I'm saying? So, yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. I, I would also add to that. I love that term, the the conceptual prison, because uh, I, I think the other aspect that you're touching on is really this mystification. So they give you the truths, but this is a... Um, and it's kind of a sleight of hand magic trick, right? So like when uh, a magician, it, it's not like they're really just waving a wand and poof, magic happens, right? There, there's a trick. And if you watch the other hand, you, you kind of learn what's going on. It doesn't seem like so magical anymore. And mm -hmm. so there is truth there. It's just in how it's being presented. And I, I think the element that, that, that results in is a mystical kind of 
um, reaction and result. And so people become mystified as a result of it because they're they're trapped in this box, you know, the conceptual prison, as you spoke of. Mm-hmm. So they can't see out of it, but yet they feel compelled to follow it because something about it seems true. And then there is the social pressure attached to it. Um, so they, they kind of just get, the, okay, this must be true and I'm going to be led. I'm going to let the, the guru, the expert, uh, you know, whoever it is who must know more than I do and they're going to guide me. And then they get kind of lost. And but at that point, then the the psychology kicks in, right? You you become so invested. You become invested in these people, this belief system. And then just to make it, you know, kind of practical for people, you know, people may have joined certain organizations, certain groups, they may have given money, given time, they built a network, um, they have a, a you know, built their whole like lifestyle around this uh belief system that they they believe to be true because they you know they've kind of diverted and uh, abdicated it because as you said they don't have the time to fully delve into it uh and to weigh it against their own intrinsic knowledge and, and then at that point even if something feels a little bit off because i think we do get into intuitive signs uh and little signals go off but even at that point then the cognitive dissonance kicks in and you know, at that point, a lot of people, instead of meeting and facing that cognitive dissonance, they they dig their their heels deeper, uh, yep. and this is and this is very effective for you know a parasite class to manipulate people because now you have people entrenched and they're passionately defending uh, whether it be a belief system, a organization, or a way of life, and they're they're more likely and more apt to. To go up to battle to defend uh, to defend it against others. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I you know one example I think that speaks well to what you're describing the mystification effect, which is a really great way to describe it. I hadn't thought of is uh, so I'm I'm going to take you back to my childhood. I w- I think I was like eight or nine years old, and I have uh, we've been doing the whole Christmas thing, and Christmas was like a big thing. We got Santa Claus bringing all the Christmas mm-hmm. presents, and it's. It's a very strange mystical experience. I mean, I come down, I remember the first memory I have of Christmas and I'm thinking, you know, I'm like, how is it that uh, Santa fit down this chimney and somehow his reindeer came with him and ate a piece of this carrot because clearly this carrot has a chunk missing out of it and there's a bite out of this cookie and the milk's been drained because that's, uh, you know, my parents kind of put this whole display up like as if Santa Claus had came and, you know, actually eaten this thing. You know, and then there's all this uh, mysticism around Christmas and, you know, we're getting these gifts. So I'm going to get an incredibly stimulating reward from participating in this group delusion that we call Christmas. So I'm identified with it. And I would argue anytime at a somatic or a body level, you derive a benefit from a conceptual structure that you're anchored to. Now that your body at a kind of deep somatic, almost primal animal level is very invested in that and you're then that benefit your mind or your body is going to be apt to defend and it will even hijack your mind through various subtle emotional processes that we'll talk about in a minute so i'm having that whole experience christmas was like a magical time when i was a kid i love the snow i love the, the christmas lights the whole deal so i remember when i was eight or nine so this is a few years after the story i was just talking about um and i go into my parents closet and they have like a crawl space back there and I'm just doing my kid thing, exploring and like having a good time back there. And I find like all these gifts 
<laughs> and on the gifts, that's it's my name. And it says Santa Claus. It comes from Santa Claus. <laughs> and I'm like, and I remember thinking to myself, like having this moment of like, wait a minute, like a part of me is trying to say, well, is, you know, I'm, I'm, it's almost like the coherent intrinsic argument of what's really happening, starting to get spun up. But immediately mm -hmm. what's happening is there's this very strong, like emotional urge, almost like as if my parents were standing behind me to be like, hey, don't you dare look at that. Don't you dare try to pop that bubble that we've created for you. And I remember feeling and choosing to decide that I wasn't going to feed into that idea anymore because I loved Christmas so much. And mm -hmm. I loved the whole mystical experience around Christmas so much that I didn't want to give that up. And so I right. didn't. And I continued to believe it for, you know, several years until obviously I came to terms with what was really happening. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, you know, the reason I bring that example up is I think, you know, that's an aspect of the psychology that's critical to understand. You know, one thing that we get frustrated at as, as you know, researchers, truthers, whatever we want to call ourselves, is that we we have taken the time to develop a really strong understanding of something that's important. Like there's mm -hmm. this truth has value, especially when you're living on a slave planet. And mm -hmm. yet when you go to try to talk to people about it, their their ability to throw up the blinders and almost like have their brain like a switch just check off and now they're getting irrational, it's really profound. And I yes. think what's happening there is there's a there's a mysticism addiction that's happening. And it's it's being fed through these social systems because ultimately, uh, because of the power of the social psychology, when you believe what other people believe, and then you derive a benefit from that association, the amount of uh, affective or emotional reward that you get for that is massive. It's enormous, and I actually think it's more akin to like a drug experience. Because I was going to say the dopamine reward circuitry. Yep. Exactly. I think it's exactly right. And I will add to that. I think social media heightens that. Um, and I, that's, I, I think they're actually doing active measures through social media oh, yeah. uh, to, <laughs> to, to heighten this because you do, you get a dopamine response when you're getting the likes, the click. I mean, some people it's a business and so that's part of it, but of course that increases the dopamine response as well. But mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's just the fiscal reward. I think people, you know, feel like, oh, I must be right. I'm being validated. I'm being rewarded. You know, it's, it's like I'm being admitted to the cool club. <laughs> You know, so right. I, and th that gets reinforced the more that they're amassing this kind of re positive reinforcement. I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at positive and negative. Um, if you're being deluded, that's not necessarily so positive, but it feels positive. And it's triggered, it's eliciting all of this, uh, you know, positive kind of uh, neurotransmitter dump, you know, the mm -hmm. serotonin and the, the dopamine. And of course, that's uh, that fuels them to continue. And it also puts up, as you said, the blinders, because now they're even more entrenched and they're even more motivated to continue on this path. And they're very dissuaded from questioning anything that might look a little murky, a little suspicious, you know, suspicious. Um, and they're less likely to do that. So I think social media is a great tool for that. And I think, uh, you know, I think it's going to be even more exacerbated with AI because now they can, you know, create algorithms in order to know what to feed people. I'm pretty sure they've already done this. I, I don't think. Oh, yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> um, the there's a film called uh, or a documentary called. Um, oh, gosh, what is it? Uh, the Millie Weaver. Social Network. No, no uh, but that's a good one, too. Um, I can't Shadowgate. That's what it's called. Okay. So Shadowgate. It was by Millie Weaver. 
Um, she subsequently got arrested after it came out. And um, it, it was, wasn't the most put together documentary, but there was, a, yeah. there was something exposed in it that was tr truly shocking and um, unnerving. And it was a confirmation of what you just said, which is that they're using social media to push ops through. And, and they, they have these things called uh, IIAs. I think it's um, interactive internet ac activity or something like that, or action. And what it is, is they use very subtle, sophisticated techniques to amplify certain messages on social media. And because of the social influencing effect that we get when we see a social media post, you're at a very subtle level, especially if you don't have any intrinsic muscles developed, you will be guided down all sorts of places and you will have no idea that you're being guided down that route. And they absolutely do this. I would say that in the internet was in part developed for this purpose. So uh, just like TV, you know, people like to think, oh, Hollywood, they're just really great artists that they love to tell stories. It's like, no, 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 <laughs> that's not what's happened. They developed movies and radio for propaganda purposes. That's what it was all about, in my opinion. So um, well, we have evidence of that. I, I sorry to interrupt, but yeah, I, yeah. I want to hear the rest of this. But I mean, we have direct evidence. We know the CIA has a film liaison division. Just go to their website. I mean, they advertise it very. It's very public. Uh, we know tons of the movies and television shows that they've been involved in. Uh, we know that uh, Tavistock was working with, uh, you know, radio initially. At first, they started with literature, right? They that was actually the first meeting at the Wellington House. Was yeah. they invited twenty five literary figures in order to create propaganda 16,000 1600 sorry 1600 pamphlets uh and then they wrote books and it was all to you know create this propaganda uh to get the british and american populace to engage in world war one on the side of the british uh and then of course they kept that secret until 1935 or maybe 1936 it was around there and uh then of course the radio came out and they did that whole and it, the rockefeller uh you know funded it it was a uh, who, who was it? it was Cantrell uh, who mm -hmm. did that whole War of the Worlds research, which was, oh, yes. uh, of course, H.G. Uh, Wells, who was also part of Wellington House. Uh, he was one of those authors. And uh, it was a it was Nelson Rockefeller who was a uh, part of this uh, um radio uh you know research and uh he was roommates at dartmouth with cantrell who was heading it up and then they they later tavistock did a whole separate division for television uh so i i just wanted to bring some concrete you know examples right. but i'm mm -hmm. sure there are tons tons more but no this was specifically part of why we did cause fast because uh you know that was creative art for, the, for those who are watching that was a creative artist uniting for the sovereignty of everyone mm -hmm. and uh, my primary intention in doing that was because I very much feel that the arts are co-opted for the purposes of social engineering and for culture creation. And uh, not to say that, you know, I necessarily agree with everything every independent artist does or says, but I very much want to give a platform to them because I think that is some sort of a resistance against this co-opted, contrived type of, uh, you know, literally mass line actions that occur through entertainment mediums. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was a great time. If if you have another one, definitely get out there, everybody, and check this out because it was it was a wonderful time talking to all those people. And um, you know, I couldn't agree more. Like creating culture, uh, especially now, it's become a kind of a popular saying, especially mm -hmm. in some of you know the kind of like Tim Pool circles and whatnot. But um, it is critically important, and that's one of the things that they've taken from us um, is our our ability as a people, as families, as couples, um, as extended families, communities, you name it, 
to generate our own narratives that we can use to govern our lives. Because ultimately, you know, to to circle back to the intrinsic extrinsic, why is it that story so powerful? Why is it that uh, one of the best ways to educate your kids is to use stories to do it, especially yeah. in the beginning when they don't have a, a t- too good of a grasp on, you know, the deeper logical aspects of things. Mm-hmm. It's because at a social level, our the way that we update the conceptual matrix or the maps that we use to map the world is through narrative. It's the best mm-hmm. way we can do it. Of course. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so the, because as humans, we learn by proxy, right? right. So, so mm-hmm. you can re- share a story and then the, the moral, the, uh, the, the lessons can be learned through the story without somebody having to firsthand experience it. And that's, you know, unique exactly. to human beings. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other things, you know, th- this is an interesting thing. Like we, Right now, we're in a period where they're trying to break down the nuclear family, and they arguably have been since the 60s. But I would they argue were way earlier, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they, they are a bigger target, and that they absolutely, I think, successfully did was they destroyed communities and they destroyed the multifamily unit and the extended family unit. Yep. And from a psychological generational, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I would. And my current level of understanding the human mind, I would say that we are not designed to be to keep our own counsel. We are not designed to navigate life without ever talking to other people who we can be conf- place our confidence in, express our ideas, express our beliefs, talk about what we think we should be doing, have them counter and discuss these things for us. And we are not designed to do that in isolation. We have to have other people. And yes. if you don't have other people, what tends to happen, not, not to mention there's all these nasty health effects from that kind of thing, Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it literally drives you crazy. And what ends up happening is- Isolation is one of the number one forms of torture. Absolutely. So they, you know, they, they use media in a very insidious way. You know, it's social media is another thing. That's a, it's like, it was already really bad with TV. I mean, we. You know, I thankfully my parents didn't put a TV in my bedroom, but I like almost everyone I knew in school had TV in their bedroom, and they were just watching hours upon hours upon hours. Yes. And what that did, I think, is it it re, it's very subtly reframes what you think you should be doing in the world, because at a psychological level, if you believe that everybody else is doing something, then you are going to be very driven to try to embody that, or at the very least, be influenced by it. And, um, you know, if you look at popular conceptions of families reaching all the way back into the, you know, uh, well, when radio certainly was out, it wasn't that prominent then, but the things, examples I'm thinking of are like when TV really got its start, there was barely any extended families. And if there were extended families, they were depicted as, you know, hicks, primitive, stupid, idiotic, these kind of things. Yeah. So, um, you know, at a, at a image information processing level, it's, I would say, um, I would say that learning how to bear your soul mm-hmm. and actually be honest fully and completely with somebody that you can know, love, and trust is one of the most healing things you can possibly imagine. And it helps you stay sane. I mean, literally, it like helps regulate your neurotransmitters. Um, it helps through what I think the endocannabinoid system was pro- properly designed to function through a social capacity. That's my personal theory. And one of the reasons that we see the incredible prevalence of uh, cannabis consumption, especially people who have anxiety issues, because they never received that proper calibration but through being able to talk openly about other people. I'm uh, The talk that I gave uh, at the CauseFest was um, 
because I'm the president of the Charles Whitfield charity for healing the child within. Mm -hmm. And that charity is by about a man, Dr. Charles Whitfield, who unfortunately passed away in 2021. And he did profound work on child development, on um, substance abuse. And he participated in something called the ACE study, which studied how your early childhood experiences can have a profound effect on your mental, emotional, and physical health. And um, there's, there is a, a, a strong correlation between anxiety disorders, health conditions, and a, a child environment where you were not allowed to be authentic. And I think we are living in, a, in an age where, and we probably have been for a very long time. I don't think this is like a 20th century thing. I think, you know, this, our inability to raise our kids properly, that's probably been going on for like a thousand years or more. Yeah. And um, it has, yeah, there you go. That's the book. Profound book. It's very easy to read. Uh, if you go to charleswhitfield.org and if you want to get the book, I encourage you to do it there because we'll get a little uh, commission from that, which would be very helpful for what we're trying to do. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's incredibly important. So the, the reason I say all that is when you don't have, when you're socially isolated, then your beliefs have way more weight to them at a somatic emotional level because mm -hmm. they, you need them to stabilize yourself. When you are socially isolated, you have no one to turn to at a conceptual level to check your back to see if you're on the right course, which means that when you feel like you're not on the right course and you're alone, the emotional volatility that comes from that is enormous. And one of the things that he discovered was that people who have autoimmune diseases, um, alcohol problems, all sorts of things, schizophrenia, things like this, if they just learn to bear their soul to somebody around them that they can know, love and trust then that immediately can have a very profound, powerful effect on healing their conditions. And uh, I would wager to add on to that, that when you speak to other people and you allow, you invite them to counsel you, and it's, and, you know, you got to be prepared for something like this. This is not like a, an easy process, but basically it goes something like this. This is what I believe, Courtney. Tell me how I'm wrong. Tell me where I'm getting it wrong. G give me your perspective and be honest, you know? <laughs> right. And what that does is it creates that different perspective on your belief system. And now that you have a different perspective, kind of reaching back to that um, uh, thesis, antithesis schematic we were looking at, mm -hmm. it, it, it increases the resolution of the maps of reality you're dealing with. It builds intrinsic knowledge because you have to actually think and argue your points at a substantive level. You can't just throw a, a Google link at somebody or something like that. Right. And, um, you know, it, it has a very powerful effect. So, so yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's also, it's, it's so fascinating because I'm thinking about it in terms of like you talked about television and then now, of course, with social media and what, what did the television do? And people still do this today. They leave it on in the background. They, they have the illusion of having company, right? So they don't, they think they're not isolated. But the reality is there is no interplay. So it, you don't have the sounding board that you were discussing, you know, that uh, to heal the child within because there is the TV is running its own program. I think there's a reason it's called a program, you know, um, <laughs> but it's running its own program. But you feel like you're uh, a part of it. So and now that's on like steroids with social media. Uh, because now people feel like they're part of this conversation, but 
I mean, you could literally be talking to bots and some people don't know that they're talking to bots. I mean, I think some people have enough discernment. AI hasn't gotten quite good enough and we're not. There's still enough immersion in reality and in the physical domain that people can, uh, you know, use that as a metric to buffer against uh, and see that sometimes AI doesn't quite sound real. But some people don't, you know, and we're seeing it where they are literally being played and they get very heightened passions and they're literally being manipulated by bots and you have this so they feel like they're part of this conversation they feel like they're getting feedback and they're going back and forth but they're either just in an echo chamber that's reinforcing uh you know whatever mystification they've already incurred uh or they're you know just uh feeling like they're a part of something that isn't actually real and I think that's very dangerous. And when you talk about how, uh, you know, this uh, kind of this process of it, it being this, uh, you know, back and forth sounding board and how that can heal, I, I think that that is so incredibly important because people, they talk so much less today. Uh, so, so much less actual intimate conversation. Conversations online in the, you know, ether space are not intimate conversations. Uh, they may feel that way and they may have... And I think a lot of people have used them to replace intimate conversation, but in some ways that's actually uh, more destructive because mm -hmm. now you're that time that you, and you have that, you have a false sense of uh, intimacy and yes. you're, you're not actually invested in creating genuine intimacy. And I, I think just, you know, this whole notion of uh, the, the social creatures and yes, I think it's so important to have, you know, that, that person that you can confide and, you know, that's incredibly healing. You know, the love is probably really, I, as corny as that sounds, it's like really one of the most healing <laughs> kind oh, yeah. of, uh, you know, things there is in the entire world. Um, but I, I think there's a, there's twofold. So you talked about like the nuclear family. I, I read a statistic. It says something like 40% uh, of women will be uh, single, you know, in the next, I don't remember if it was the next decade or uh, it, it was something astounding. I, I don't want to misquote, but it was a very astounding statistic. I just saw it flash really quickly. So, uh, you know, to full disclosure, I haven't done a deep dive on that, but, but it was something really shocking and I can see it. So, you know, I, I will go and look and verify, but you know, it's, when I'm looking around me, that does seem to be true. And I do think it's by design, you know, because of course they, they want to create the isolation. They want to put us in a metaverse and silo us. Um, and they also want to depopulate. So if, if more and more people are single, they're not pairing up, but then they're also depressed. The people, single people don't live as long. You know, there's mm -hmm. tons of studies have shown that, that married couple, healthy married couples live a much longer, healthier life. Yeah. Uh, but then of course, you know, you were not meant to be, you know, little, you know, two pods either, you know, we are supposed to be immersed in a, a community and a family. Right. And that does buffer against all sorts of false realities that you could create. Because if you're living in your own bubble, uh, oh, so here it is, Sing single women are expected to grow 1.2% uh, annually from 2018 to 2030 compared with uh, 0.8 for the overall U.S. population. Oh, wow. And no that kidding. is astonishing and mm -hmm. I, the the consequences of that are devastating and i i do think you know i mean i i've talked a lot about this the uh, the rise of she economy was the title of that article <laughs> um but i do think the whole women's lib movement was designed to 
uh, separate and, of course, you know, lead to the transhuman and the uh, post-human uh, world that we are really seeing start to emerge. Uh, and of course, they were, you know, pretty transparent about some of these things in the earlier. It's interesting when you read uh, history because the language was much more honest and transparent. Uh, you know, like uh, Bernays talked about polling as being opinion making and manufacturing consent. <laughs> like he actually said that. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. And now like if you say that, no, you're a crazy conspiracy theorist. Well, um, no, that's that's what they called it. So oh, right. yeah. They, they, exactly. changed, they changed the language and then you know you you're gaslit essentially. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think this extended family model is so you have some sort of a um the analogy I use, and it's kind of like a superficial, it sounds silly, but I think it's a really good one because it I think people can really relate to it as I talk about like you know, when I was growing up, we had all these magazines, we had movies, and of course, you know, all the all the the players are airbrushed, and you know, in, in the movies, everything looks perfect, and you know, and then you see a lot of these celebrities. Well, at least I did. I I grew up right outside New York City, and I I lived mm -hmm. in L.A. You know, I'd see these people in real life, and they they don't look so perfect, you know, in real life because they're human, right? Uh, and that's not to say that none of them are beautiful, or but they don't look like they do in their perfectly airbrushed pictures. Um, and I would also even not just seeing them, but I, but I would step outside in the world and see real people around me and be like. I would have some sort of a something to measure up against and say, okay, well, this is not real and this is real. And mm -hmm. uh, so even though you still, you know, people are still affected by it, it can, you can still be impressionable. Oh, well, you know, we're, we're being told we should look like this, but it's not this constant bombardment where we don't have any uh, checks and balances against it. But then you move into having the constant, uh, you know, TV and then the reality TV, which is not so real. And then, of course, the social media. Now it's 24-7. And not only is it 24-7, but it's directly being fed to you. And so it becomes harder and harder because you think these are real people. And mm -hmm. but nothing is real because people are putting their even the most uh, like authentic and genuine of people. I think there are people on social media who are, you know, pretty real. And, uh, you know, I don't have enough time or enough technical know how to do all the filters and whatever. Nice. Um, and so I, I just let my ego go and my vanity just has to take a back seat sometimes. But <laughs> and I acknowledge and I'm not always happy about it, but I just don't right. have the time or the patience or the skills to to deal with it. So I think there are people who are, but it's still, they're putting their best foot forward. You're still getting a snapshot of them, but now it's constant. And mm -hmm. that becomes really hard to, whereas when you have the communities and you have extended families, there's just, you just have more of a buffer against that. You have more reality to, uh, to foster and to discern. Right. Yeah. And it, it's, it helps stabilize you and you need, you need that extended family. You need a, a you need a community. And I would mm -hmm. say, you know, one of the reasons relationships, especially marriages, took a nosedive in the 20th century is we went from hyper interconnected communal units where you had, the, you know, the, the nuclear family, grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins, they all lived fairly close to each other in most circumstances. And then if not, if not with you, in some if cases, not with yeah. You, yeah, I mean, I grew up in uh, Reading, Massachusetts, and my on my father's side, we had a lot of family in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is mm -hmm. right near Lowell. And so it's the mill mm -hmm. area. And yep. um, a lot of the houses were these three-story extended family houses where you had like four apartments in a single house specifically designed for an extended family to live in. Right. So um, 
you know, right now we think of that and you're like, man, I would never want my in-laws around me or that kind of stuff. But the, just from a parenting perspective, like think about it this way as a, if I was to have, cause you know, we're aspiring parents. I don't have any kids yet, but that's going to mm-hmm. be coming here soon. God willing. And um, yeah. the thought, of, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, you're, you're a prospective mother. Let me mm-hmm. ask you, what sounds better having your, your husband, let's say it's a traditional type of situation. Your husband has to go work most of the time. So you're alone at home with mm-hmm. the kid. You know, I mean, being alone, period, is a lot to bear for anyone. You have the, yeah. there's a lot of house you got to take care of. You got to clean. You got all that kind of stuff. And let's assume that you're a homemaker and you don't have a j- career you're trying to juggle at the same time. You know, that right now, that's is the trad ideal for a lot of people. Dad goes and works. Mom stays at home with the kids. And it's, it sounds like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's probably good. That's what we had in the 50s, right? It's, that's leave mm-hmm. it to beaver. That's what it should be, right? Mm-hmm. Well, no, it's not. Because the problem is, is that you don't get a break as a mother that way. There's no social support. Women in particular are their, their ability to experience relief from just having one other person around them to deal with hardship. You can look up studies on this. Is profound. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my, my wife, for example, you know, she, if, 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 if we're really busy and I don't have time to help with whatever we're doing, preparing for holidays, like we just had like 20 people here for Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And um, if she had to do that all on her own, it would, tax the hell out of her she would drain her she'd have she'd have to take a lot of breaks she'd be very stressed out throughout the whole process and the whole ordeal would be very negative in its overall emotional uh, tone to it but oh, just yeah. having one other person to help her with that which is what happened this past uh this past thanksgiving I, we have a, a new uh, roommate slash friend colleague who moved into the the vigilant news compound so to speak mm-hmm. and um it was night and day difference. It became a joy to prepare for Thanksgiving. And uh, all of the things, you know, so uh, so from a parenting perspective, it's the same thing. When you have other people around you, even if it's just one other person, now right. it's a communal activity. Now it's, right. a, it's a social activity. And right. if you look at other cultures, um, for example, um, I lived in Morocco for a year and three months. Uh, my wife's uh, mother is married to a Nepalese man, and he, there it's a very traditional culture. They didn't even have any type of modern amenities up until like 20, 30 years ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so all the the way that they, they raise their kids and have their lifestyle is totally different. Most of the family lives in the same house. When mm-hmm. you get married, the whole town celebrates. It's actually rude not to invite everybody in the town when you get married. Wow. <laughs> And so the, what's interesting is there's there's no behavioral issues. All, the kids are highly obedient. They're happy. They mm-hmm. let the, the adults talk. They're never like, you know, invading the adult space, these kind of things. They don't have nearly almost any type of the psychological issues we deal with. Now, is it perfect? No, of course not. There's, there, we do not live on a perfect planet. But, <laughs> but to compare, the difference is profound. And then from another perspective for, um, for the child, a, a mother and her child, the, if the face interface, it's called co-regulation, mm-hmm. it's critical. It might be the so most critical. important. Yeah, you've heard about that before? Yep. And um, so if you're a mother and you're home alone, so you, dad's not around, you're having to take care of everything, you have to clean, you have to deal with the kid, you got to entertain the kid, you got to do all the things that happen, you're probably going to be in a moderately stressed out state. What's going to happen to your facial expressions when you're in that? They're not necessarily going to be all that cheerful and jovial. Right. And if you've uh, if you ever studied si- serial killers 
one of the things that is a very common element is that almost always Jeffrey Dahmer being a really prominent case that the, the mo his mother had a lot of postpartum depression. She was very unhappy. And so that negative facial expression directed at a child when he, when that period after birth, I call that the second pregnancy because it's like, or the external pregnancy, I should say. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah, where the central nervous the fourth trimester, which exactly, makes sense. Yeah. I'm like, do people not do math? Right. Yeah. Fourth <laughs> trimester is not, that's not a thing, but I've right. heard it all that. Um, you know, it's it, what it does is it causes massive dysregulation of the, the child's central nervous system. And that's the point. It's designed to weapon. I mean, what they've basically done is they've weaponized the parenting experience to generate emotionally damaged highly extrinsically dominant people that mm -hmm. are heavily rely on everything. And then because there's not enough social time, you know what they do? They got TV, they got social media, they got video games, they fill it in with their propaganda. And all of that has a very powerful effect on a, a person's ability to be sovereign, actually think for themselves, be inventive, innovative, and be able to navigate their life in a healthy way. Yeah, that's so, so true. And it's so interesting because I'm kind of thinking about what you were saying about like, you know, the the truths and how they use the truths for the psychological operations. And I, I've been seeing, you know, people argue with me that it's not really the red pill movement. I, I'm not, uh, I guess, savvy enough to, to know, yes, there was the red pill movement officially in 2002 era, you know, that that's what they call the red, move, red pill movement. But what I'm seeing is another iteration of this kind of red pill movement. And it totally looks like a psyop to me because mm. they're, they're taking elements of, what happens is it becomes this pendulum swing, right? So, you know, they, they had the the radical feminist movement, and now there's this push towards. This is why I say I feel like the right the right is really being psyoped so hard right now. Oh, yeah. And so, of course, there's this big push for the trad, you know, relationship, the trad wife, um, and that's great. I, I'm I'm not you know uh, I, I'm not saying that there's no merit to that. Sure. However, um, you you can't take things outside of context, and you can't. You know, you can't create a, a utopia is nowhere. So you can't just create an ideal scenario or world or situation and just, you know, make this little bubble outside of the context of the world that we actually live in. So what they're doing is they're very much shaming a lot of relationships that may not be, you know, quite as traditional as maybe we'd like to direct society into uh, but that are still very healthy, happy, functional relationships that are actually benefiting society. You know, a lot of these people are, you know, either happy, healthy couples or they're couples that have children and healthy family. I mean, nobody's perfect. But, you know, just because it's not 100% traditional, this is not a reason to be shaming what's actually working, right? Right. And I'm seeing so much of that right now. And it's mm. like, I'm not sure how this is benefiting society. How is this going to help? Exactly. I, I don't know if you've seen any of that, but that's a, that's another one that's running right now that I'm just, uh, and it, you know, it's, it's interesting when I watch just, <laughs> I watch all of these different things that I, I'm seeing crop up and I feel like it's very interesting, the kind of the target audiences that they've created. Mm. There's obviously like the people who are very interested in kind of cultural things, not necessarily, you know, ideas or politics, 
Um, but they're going to bite onto that. It's going to be very appealing to them. And it becomes kind of like a, uh, a reality show for them to engage, but, you know, engage in a group format. Um, right. And I'm seeing that and, you know, that there are many different types of them, but I, that, that's and one thing. Just to clarify for me, because I'm not exactly sure of this, you're saying the trad kind of wife thing is something you're seeing people talk about a lot? Yes. So I'm seeing they're, they're talking about, you know, like this ideal of a trad wife or a trad relationship and that we should encourage uh, the trad wife. And I'm like, that's all well and good. First of all, what is a trad wife? Because, you know, right. not everybody's <laughs> right. So and, and how far, far back are we going? What tradition are we trying to, right. uh, you know, put up on a pedestal here? Um, but it's also doesn't make sense when that's not, even in a let's say their version of an ideal uh, relationship, like a, even it, or, or world where everybody, you know, follows this traditional model, personalities vary and strengths and weaknesses vary. And, you know, that that's not always going to be the case, but that doesn't mean that it's, that there's something wrong with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I am seeing this push for very much what I think would be more of like the fifties traditional uh, kind of right. is what they're really pushing for. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the fifties was in many ways, a, a psyop. I mean, yeah. didn't they run like a, the separate wives? It was mother's little helpers. And mm -hmm. so they had like a whole, uh, uh, a drug campaign going on and, uh, yeah, I, I don't think, and it was also, as you said, it was, it was the start of this nuclear family, which I think eroded communities and extended families, and uh, it was to put people into their own little bubble, and also to create this, uh, you know, uh, notion of uh, the, the consumerist model that we're very much, right, because it was like the Mad Men era. Right, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah exactly, so okay. So I completely agree. I think, and this is, it actually harkens back to the whole intrinsic versus extrinsic yeah. because, you know, you're, let's, uh, I just saw a statistic recently that Gen Z is one of the most conservative generations, are potentially the most conservative generation that we've had in X number of time. So, um, and part of the reason why is there's this natural, there's, a, there's always going to be a bifurcation when they push for one thing. And this happens naturally in any social system, especially when you have a uh, population that is largely extrinsic in the way it relates to reality. You have uh, the main thrust of people going one way, and then there are always outliers of people who want to you know, do their own thing for whatever reason. Right. And now we have this massive push to destroy manhood and feminineness, to, to destroy parenting. So all these things that you know, if you had any type of identification with when you were younger or whatnot, you're going to feel like, well, wait a minute, I don't want to like give up being a mother necessarily. Right. And that reaction, I think, is a healthy one. You know, we should be right. able to identify when things are not going the way we think we want. Right. But here's the problem is, are you taking a precursory surface level examination of the issue and just doing something in the opposite end of the spectrum that might not be in the right direction? And I think that I think you nailed it. I think the trad thing is exactly that. And that this is another thing they're very good at doing. They roll out propaganda in like these epochs. And then at the, at the tail end of the or the beginning of a new epoch, which arguably probably started around 2010, in my estimation, you've got this looking back and people get all nostalgic for the past and say, oh, look, look how great it was back in the nuclear family, not realizing that that was also just another sophisticated psyop. You know? So um, but it, it, it comes down to intrinsic versus extrinsic. I think if you're 
if you really want to make sure that what you've chosen is actually good for you, which I think mm -hmm. everybody wants to do at some level, you sure. have to be willing to dig into the nitty gritty granular details of it and really ask, well, what it, why was a trad wife or trad familial situation attractive to me? Right. You know, and if what if your conceptualization of being a trad wife is somebody who wears pinup makeup and bakes cakes during the day and you know does the laundry, you know, that's all great. No get me wrong. I'm not saying those things are intrinsically bad, but right. you know, there's there's what you need, there's the reality of what you need to be a successful wife, parent, mother, or husband, you know, that kind of mm -hmm. thing, father. And then there's the image of what you think that looks like. Exactly. And if you're stuck in intrinsic land, you get confused by the shiny bauble that is the image and you're not doing the substance. So, Exactly. Yeah. That, that was so well said. And that is what I'm seeing is that they're presenting these images as opposed to uh, what is the uh, practical application of that. And, what, and the practical application is going to look different for everyone. So they're kind of ignoring a very uh, like real life scenario and uh, real practical situations. And they're also ignoring just the very basic functionality of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. And, you know, one thing I want to mention, this is probably a good place for it, is that there's a phrase, I usually use it in referring to health, but it okay. can be used anywhere. And it's, I call it the ladder of health, yeah. or we might call it the ladder of excellence. Mm -hmm. And um, what I mean by that is everybody's on a different place on the ladder. Right. And if you try to jump from one place to another place too quickly, you, you know, you're, you might not be able to do it. You might demoralize yourself, these kind of things. And so let's say like, you know, you've got a 21 year old woman who recently got married, is about to have a kid and she's trying to figure out what the hell her family is going to look like. And she's on TikTok and she's scrolling through videos and she sees the career woman who's like working, you know, 80 hours a week and trying to have her parent or her or to be a mother at the same time. And she's like, man, I don't want to do that. Well, let me go to the other end of the spectrum. And she's like, well, the, the trad thing seems like it's a better choice. Mm -hmm. For her in that place, maybe that is the next right step forward in that ladder. Right. But a ladder has to, you got to keep going along the ladder. And, um, you know, this is one thing I wanted to to mention as far as like, a, especially us as like public figures, you know, when we comment yeah. on things, yeah. it's very easy to be like, oh, yeah, there you go. I, yeah. I didn't even know there was a thing called ladder of excellence. That's <laughs> <cool>. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, you know, you it's... It's very easy to be like, oh, this, I looked at this very complex, nuanced topic, and I find this one little point that I think is bad, and I'm going to kind of uh, present my whole opinion on it as if the right. whole thing is garbage, right? you know, and um, not to say that there's not a place for that necessarily, but right. I think, um, you know, our, we, we have to be a little bit more nuanced and realize that in most cases, people are just trying to do the best they can with what they have to work with. Absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, so using our ability to, to talk more intrinsically about what being a good parent is, what being happy, healthy, you know, mentally, I think is a good way to go. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, the ladder of health is a really great way to look at it, too, because uh, you see this all the time with people wanting to make lifestyle changes and they jump into like the most extreme kind of and you're like, this is probably not going to work for you if, like, you sleep two right. hours a night and live on McDonald's. Like, you know, maybe we'll start with something really 
really basic, you know, <laughs> and it'll be make a big difference. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I saw that all the time as a, you know, as a trainer and a coach, I saw it all the time there. Uh, people always want to go to the most extreme. And I'm like, this doesn't really sound like where you're at on this ladder, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's a really, what are you, what are you seeing in terms of like, what made you feel like this was an important topic to address? Uh, well, it, it goes back, I guess, to, um, although I didn't know it at the time when yeah. I was much younger in school, yeah. um, I kind of had a rebellious bent to me. And so when the large, a large group of people believe something mm-hmm. that when I looked at it, didn't seem to make sense. I kind of wanted to be like, Oh, look at these stupid people. You know what they're talking about? You know, that kind of stuff. And then, then as I got older, um, uh, this is after I, I quote unquote woke up in 2010, I was trying to figure out like, man, you know, I'm a, I went, well, to give you a little more context, I went to school for physics. So I always considered myself to be somebody who's like a, I, I have a good mind. I can look at a topic. I can understand it. And when I realized that in 2010, the cures for cancer were being suppressed and our science had been weaponized, I felt, you know, I felt like the carpet had been pulled out from under me. I'm like, man, I should have caught this. I, you know, I'm, I'm better than this. I'm smarter than this. I should be have been able to see through the delusion. And so I was, you know, I spent about a year just trying to reorient myself in reality, having my, you know, the, the, uh, the destruction of my belief system as a result of really realizing I'd been so profoundly deceived. And, you know, at one point I had, I, I kind of created like another belief system about what was going, what I thought was going on. And I had, I, at one point I asked myself, I'm like, well, how do I know that's true? How do I know I just jump from one dogma to another set of dogma, right? Right. And I I was like, well, there's got to be some way to really know what's going on, or at least attempt to. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I discovered, and I think every deep thinker probably discovers this, certainly a lot of the Enlightenment philosophers knew this, which is that, interestingly enough, you can really never be certain of anything. You know, so you have to be able to examine, you know, you can have degrees of certainty for sure. And then you can have what I call functional certainty, which basically means that, you know, this, this thing that is here, I I definitely know it's here. And if I walk away from the room, it's probably going to be here when I get back, that kind of stuff. Right. And you know that you, you, you trust it, uh, the reality of it enough to drink from it, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I probably didn't change into something I don't want to drink since we were having this conversation. (laughs) Right. Um, so, uh, so, so what, as a result of that, I, I realized that there, if the only way for me to have any ability to navigate things with functional certainty, meaning can I make reasonably good choices in the moment? And then can I appraise those choices after the fact and make course corrections to make sure I'm what I think on the most ideal path possible, I have to have it under my own command. And once I realized that, that you, the best thing to do for the lack of a better term is to just try to become your own expert. Like I was, when I was evaluating the Gerson therapy with respect to cancer, I, I hadn't studied biochemistry in years and I didn't really learn a whole lot about it much when I was in college because I was studying physics. And so I started encountering terms and ideas that I didn't really grasp. And I kind mm-hmm. of, you know, thought, oh, well, you know, it's okay. I don't have to learn that. But after the first reading of the Gerson therapy book, I, I kind of got it, but I wanted to really know if I'm going to go start to talk to people about this in my family, I want to really know what I'm talking about. 
Sure. And so I took the time to every time I had a concept that I wasn't absolutely sure I understood, I would go and study the hell out of it and try to map it out as much as humanly possible. And it was slow going. It took a long, arduous effort of, you know, having to learn things that you don't think you really need to know. Like, um, and as a result of that, my after it took me like three months to vet that material. And I had kind of exhausted all the different possibilities. Yeah, there you go. The Gerson, the mm -hmm. great website, lots of great information if you're dealing with health issues, by the way. And um, I, I had, in a way, I had gone down every hallway in the labyrinth, so to speak. And because of that, I was finding that it was a lot easier to navigate not only my understanding of it, but when I would be asked questions about it, I actually could provide a good answer because I had mapped everything out sufficiently well. And at that point, I realized, wait a minute, that's kind of like the gold standard. Like the more, not only do I, can I really know if something is at least uh, mostly true or not, so I have functional certainty, mm -hmm. but as a result of learning all these other topics, now I am more literate in a lot more of reality than I was to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the, you know, in the Twitter posts we were talking about uh, that you we started this with, uh, one of the things I say is that uh, intrinsic knowledge is like a reality decoder. It's a cipher for reality right. because reality in a lot of ways is, is encoded. You, you can't just look at any, you can't look at the sun and know exactly what's happening with the sun at a physiochemical level, how the, how much energy is emitting from there, you know, it's effects on your body, why it's absorbed by plants, you know, the effect it has in our tectonic plates and things like this. You know, so you have to take the time to generate a, an internal kind of what we might think of as a language that is itself made up of iconized ideas or grandly or little facts that you've taken mm -hmm. the time to vet. And when you do that, you get you your ability to just look at something after you've done that process and kind of have a real time experience of understanding it and visualizing it increases dramatically. And um, there's a few people that I uh, like Leonardo da Vinci. I think he is one of the people that had a deep level of intrinsic knowledge. Mm -hmm. So you know, autodidact, people who can teach themselves things and learn things automatically, seemingly, mm -hmm. they often have, I would argue, an intrinsic foundation to their knowledge base. And um, I think Elon Musk is probably one of these people. Mm -hmm. I think Donald Trump is probably one of these people. Um, and uh, uh, Mandelbrot, he's a really good example of this. If you're familiar with, you know, the cool fractals, uh, his name's God, I can't remember his first name, but if you just search for Mandelbrot, that his okay. name will come up. And um, and the Mandelbrot is a guy who discovered the fractal equation. Okay. And what he had the ability to do is that he, he didn't need to graph anything when he was trying to study complex algebraic equations and, and uh, expressions. He had developed such an intrinsic understanding of how all that worked that all he had to do was see the expression and he could visualize the correct graph in his head. Wow. And and I think that's the kind of the superpower behind intrinsic knowledge. Like, you know, you're you're I think you're a good example of this, too, actually, because you have an incredible ability to I, forgive me. I don't remember the name of the the beautiful thing you did at the the cause fest with the ropes and the swinging and all that oh, kind of stuff. Ariel. <laughs> Ariel. Yeah. You know. You've spent years practicing, learning things, all that. It's probably not second nature for you to do some of that stuff, I imagine. And so you have an intrinsic grasp mm -hmm. of what it takes to be successful. So much so that when you're in the moment, mm -hmm. you can you can do things that you're, you're kind of almost like what they call a flow state. 
You're not mm-hmm. really thinking about it. It's just your the, the thought comes and maybe it's visualized in your mind for a split second and your body's just expressing that because you've you have a functional knowledge and an intrinsic knowledge of all the various body movements, you know, what the way your body moves, all that kind of stuff. And it gives you an incredible ability to navigate reality in a way that somebody who doesn't have that can't do. So um so yeah, that's that's kind of that's really interesting, actually, because when you first said it, I was like, hmm. And then I thought about so you know at Causefest, I had this uh Shalazian on my eye, so I couldn't wear my contacts and you mm-hmm. can't wear glasses because they just fly off. Um right. and so I, it was pretty dark in there. And I had to really just trust that I would be able to to do it and you know, just know it intrinsically. Uh, you know, the embodiment of it rather than relying on the visual cues and uh, the visual spatial perception, which is, I mean, you're essentially, I always describe it as like making a puzzle physically, like with your body. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the next day we had given them the, because I do two routines, we had given them the music and they used the Spotify version, which was almost a full minute shorter. And so... I had to kind of, I realized it about a third of the way in. I'm like, this music is off. And so I had to kind of make a game time decision about like, you know, um, how to, how to proceed. Like, do I speed up and go with the music or do I, you know, just uh, keep going and let it, you know, be on the time without mm-hmm. the the timing of the music. And uh, the, the guy who was doing the live stream said to me, that was such a, great artistic choice to keep going after the music i was like <laughs> no i was like it was a choice midway through but not uh <laughs> but yeah I, I can see how that's intrinsic uh because you know i i knew it enough and i could depend on internal uh variable factors in order to buffer uh, and mitigate against the external variables uh that presented themselves and uh, not trust the external and, you know, depend mm-hmm. on what was happening internally in order to proceed. So, yeah. Um, well, I know we have a, a little bit of time left. So I want to ask you just in terms of maybe the grand scope of what is you you had described us as being on a prison planet um, or an enslaved planet. Uh, and that does seem to be, uh, you know, apparent, <laughs> unfortunately. So I'm curious your thoughts on we are going to be heading into uh, an election year, possibly. Uh, I know people have questioned whether that's even happening. (laughs) What what, what PSYOP will they bring forth to uh, prohibit uh, that from happening? I do not know. Um, You know, or what what kind of cataclysm will they (laughs) inject um, or create, you know, some crisis. But I'm curious your thoughts on where we are headed, what the future of personal sovereignty looks like. Um, and if, uh, because I, you know, I kind of started this by saying, I think we are, we are really facing PSYOP like on steroids and Mm -hmm. it is, it does look like actually very specific targeted, like militaristic, you know, active measures. And I, I can't prove that that's me as, you know, just a outsider Mm -hmm. observing, but it looks that way. And, you know, you expect like a lot of the, uh, the behavior you see from the left, you expect that. I, but what I'm really seeing is uh, this constant schisms on the right. And they don't, I, I'm not saying nothing ever happens organically. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but they look contrived and mm-hmm. they look intentionally designed to divide and conquer 
And I think there, and I'm really seeing in the alternative media space, especially uh, what look like very potential, uh, you know, active measures, psyops, even potentially co-opted assets. And, you know, again, mm -hmm. I can't prove any of this, just what it looks like to me, uh, but yeah. The right, yeah. <laughs> well, um, I guess, uh, for, well, first of all, I, I wanted to mention, you reminded me that I think, um, my, in my opinion, we are the re one of the reasons I call it a slave planet. I mean, there's a lot of reasons we could say that, but from a yeah. from a mind control perspective, yeah, I would define mind control as somebody who is illiterate with reality to the extent that the bulk of their knowledge base is mm -hmm. extrinsic, and and that means that they rely on things outside of them to tell them what is true, what is yeah. valuable, and what they should do. Yeah. Um, so to use the uh, the Plato's cave analogy. Mm -hmm. if, if somebody's been living in Plato's cave for their whole life and somebody comes to run in and be like, hey, you're, you've been living in a cave your whole life, time to get the hell out. That person's not going to be literate with the reality that they're about to enter. Right. And they will be just like ne uh, Morpheus said in the Matrix, they will fight to protect the reality that they, they are inhabiting. Mm -hmm. And so that presents a, a logistical challenge. Like if you actually, I do believe there are forces, groups, people, who are trying to liberate the planet. Um, but it presents a problem, which is how do you do that when most of the people on earth are so hopelessly dependent on their controllers and their, and in, to the, the, they're so dependent that at the thinking level, just literally the words and the thoughts that people use to interact with themselves, with other people, with reality, were supplied to them by the orchestrators of the Plato's Cave shadow puppet, so to speak. And so, you know, it's not, you can't just flip a switch and free people. And what I think is happening right now is that we have competing psyops. So ultimately, I think just like a, a parent has to effectively, from a substantive perspective, why is it that narrative is very effective to teach kids, especially like two, three, four, five, six, and seven at that toddler mm -hmm. kind of older? Well, stories are really effective because they're narratives. As we said earlier, narratives have been a psychological effect of mapping onto a person's mind. And right. so in a way, a parent is using psyops to train and educate their children. Right. And I mean that functionally. So uh, I think, <laughs> not I necessarily maliciously, but yes, right. it, it functionally, yes. Yeah. Believe me, there are parents that do the malicious variety too. But, right. right. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, on the whole, that just from a substantive perspective, you know, you have mm -hmm. to use, you have to work with people where they're at. And I think right. we have competing psyops happening I right so now. Too. And, you know, the, when it comes to, uh, I'll speak to the, the the Trump version of it because I think that's one of the most prominent one. A lot of people believe Trump is kind of on the positive end of the spectrum, that mm -hmm. he's trying to do good. You know, we can argue whether that's true or not. But mm -hmm. one thing I think can't be inargued is that the, what his narrative is trying to push out there is directly countering the globalist narrative. Mm -hmm. And the globalist narrative is one that relies on... Uh, well, I won't go too deep into it because we're limited on time, but basically they, they've been using the, the promise of a futuristic, amazing age where of splendor and nobody will want for anything as a kind of carrot on a stick to be guiding people deeper and deeper into their own enslavement for a long time. Right. And so a lot of the things that with happening around Trump, it's it's a little confusing. If you're thinking that the end game is like, well, the military is going to ride in on a horse and free all the people. They're going to arrest all the pedophiles and the bad guys. And we're going to wake up the next day and it's going to be paradise. It's like, well, again, 
what do you what do you do with the person who's so hopelessly addicted to the cave that if you take them out of the cave they crumble into a puddle on the floor because they don't know what to do with their life right but you have to create a slow careful process where their intrinsic muscles are going to slowly come out of atrophy and start to come online and i think you know again i'm not saying he is the like the ultimate trump is not necessarily the ultimate you know savior here but i'm saying just analyzing his methodology and the things that have come through him and the whole operation i think the the reason why the the cavalry didn't come in and save the election in 2020 the reason why clinton and the bad guys were arrested in 2017 or things like this or why devolution wasn't pulled uh, after 2020 to have the military come over and take over the government is because it's not about getting control over the government only it's not about arresting these people only the real right. mission i think is to liberate the minds of the people and that takes time Mm-hmm. So it's all been, in my opinion, I think everything that has been happening on that side of it is all designed to kind of create a very prominent counter narrative mm-hmm. that is specifically designed to activate people and wake them up and make them question and make them question Trump. I mean, obviously, there's a whole bunch of people that think he's, you know, Jesus reincarnate. I'm not necessarily one of those people, but, you know, <laughs> but he's he's doing things that are, I think, are going are absolutely having the effect of waking people up. And when it comes to the election year, I think we're the, I mean, it's always gets crazy in election year, but this is going to be one of the craziest election years probably ever in human history, you know, potentially, certainly in the past 300 years. So um, I think that that something will undoubtedly probably happen to do something. I mean, we already saw, uh, I would say the past few months with the whole Israeli Palestinian thing is a big thing. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with the, uh, Neoplatonism and, um, the sublunary worldview and a lot of the things that were popular, especially during John D's time and things like this. Um, you know, this idea of restoring Israel and, you know, this is v- very big for the powers that be, this is like something that they're very invested in. And they think, at least in my opinion, I think they believe that this is going to be the big end game for them. Mm-hmm. So they're pulling out a lot of their stops. The bad guys are. And on concurrent with that, you've got the good guys. If you know, again, it's not as transparent as black and sure. white as that, but you know, there's there's a counter narrative happening. And um, and so I think over the next year, we're going to see unprecedented things happening that that cause people's realities and their addiction to the cave, so to speak, to be shaken up way more than we've seen in the past, you know, 10 years. And we've seen a lot happen in the past mm-hmm. few years, but it's going to be even more prominent. Uh, to what extent? I'm not sure. I don't know if, is it, will we have an election in 2024? I'm not quite sure. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. Um, maybe it'll get stolen again. Maybe it won't. But I think whatever the end game is, either it'll be, you know, we lose and now we're full force going down the, the path towards the Great Reset Agenda and the 15 minute cities nonsense. Or we we're in a path where we, the people, individuals are going to be way more proactive and activating their intrinsic muscles and actually trying to understand what's happening. And that could mean military. It could mean um, some kind of a people's uprising. I'm not really sure what it's going to look like, but I know that at the end of the day, if we do have our freed planet, if if all the bad guys are rounded up tomorrow and we had no more bad guys on planet Earth, what would we do? Could we run our society again? Could we try to make the world a better place and, and improve things again? 
I think it's going to take us to re-examine literally everything that we believe and think. And and just like we were talking about the trad situation, you know, some people think we just got to go back to the 50s and everything will be great. Some people think we got to go back to the, the 80s, you know, and everything will be great. I think we need to re-examine everything. We need to do a total and complete epistemic regress on everything we believe, think, and value in this world. And from that, rebuild what we think is a good way to go from the ground up. And I also think that there's a lot of knowledge that has been hidden from humanity that's kind of waiting in the wings mm -hmm. to, uh, to, to help us with this process. So, so yeah, that's kind of yeah. some of my thoughts on that. Wow. Well, I know we are running out of time, but that left me with so many questions. So maybe we will revisit <laughs> because now I've got like probably, yeah, a whole nother conversation. We well, can have. I mean, I got like another 10, 15 minutes if you want to. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well then I, I, okay. Then the, a couple of things I want to address in there. Um, the first one, and you can tackle whichever you want to. Uh, mm -hmm. The first one is in terms of the hidden knowledge, because I, I'm very, very fascinated by that. Like, I'm curious uh, what particular hidden knowledge you think there is, uh, what uh, the reality of, because I think we have a lot of kind of dangling carrots about hidden knowledge that may not actually be uh, real hidden knowledge. They may, may be steering us in a direction. Uh, and what would what would that change about our world functionally as well as uh you know, uh, just in, yeah, so many capacities, uh, functionally, societally, uh, and, uh, ideologically as well. Um, and then the other question I was going to address is, uh, I'm very curious about, and this is, it's might be kind of a longer topic to unpack, but when you're talking about the Neoplatonists and John D, um, how much of that do you think is at play, uh, currently with this whole battle or, and how much of it do you think is, uh, really kind of, a or do you think it's a combination of kind of like the the Fabian socialists are are really playing a dialectical hand? I, I refer to Ion Rachu's book, The Milner Fabian Conspiracy, a lot right now uh, because he outlines, you know, of course, the the Zionist movement that was set up in large part by the Fabians, but he also talks about uh, the Islamification of Europe and the West uh, designed to uh, create this dialectical pole because uh, a lot of the Islamic faith is very aligned with with kind of the tyrannical uh, structure that they want to set up. Uh, and it's, of course, a great uh, model to have them pitted against each other because now you have people who are so impassioned because of their religious faiths and their religious beliefs. And, uh, uh, of course, because of, and I don't mean to use this word pejoratively, but the entitlements that they hold dear. Right. Uh, and I don't mean this to be pejorative to either one, but, you know, they, because they're attached to a uh, biblical view of what should happen, of course, they are uh, much more... Uh, attached and aligned and uh, ready to defend than they would be if it was just, uh, you know, a war over uh, territory or, uh, you know, material goods per se. Right, right. Yeah, I think, um, I guess to answer the, the last question first, uh, yeah. I think my opinion is that the, there's like a, it's an exoteric core yeah. A, a Russian doll exoteric kind of esoteric situation where, you know, you, th you might think, oh, well, you know, the the cabal are a bunch of spiritualists and they they're into like um, uh, Crowleyan type, you know, ritualistic magic and whatnot. And that's like an esoteric component from another level. But even yeah. when you're in that, that is itself just another exoteric layer of some type of, in my opinion, a psyop to entrap a certain class of people 
Mm-hmm. And, and that that methodology of constantly generating new like front to drag people in has been happening for a very long time. In my honest opinion, I think the religions that we interact with today are all just different branches of the same kind of conceptual prison psyop. Now, (laughs) speaking to what we said earlier, does that mean there's no truth to it? No, I think there's, you know, there's value. They have to build these things with a lot of stuff in them or no one would want to, you know, engage with them. Right. You know, so we can sort out what is totally true or false in another conversation about all yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point is, is that, you know, in my opinion, if you if you look at, you know, ask yourself, when did this whole idea of Israel and Palestine and, you know, all this stuff really kind of become prominent? It is a very old idea. Very old idea. I The, the earliest versions I've heard about it reach all the way back into like, um, you know, before Christ even was on Earth. So this this idea of like redeeming Israel and like going to the Holy Land and God's people, this is a very old concept. And um, I think the uh, the influence of what we might think of as the the Enlightenment rage that happened in the uh, well, I guess it wasn't the Enlightenment back then, but I'm thinking like during the Elizabethan era of like John Mm -hmm. Dee and whatnot. It was like the kind of like proto Enlightenment, so to speak. Yeah. um, but that that was itself the the whatever the, the I call them the death cult like the core of all this yeah uh, the, the death cult was trying to entrap certain pe- certain classes of people I think the aristocracy in particular mm-hmm. and so they they used religiosity because the aristocracy um, rests its authority onto a biblical narrative that they are you know given the divine right to rule and all these things and so they framed a whole version of the psyop specifically for them. And that is the sublinary worldview. I learned about this through a book called uh, John D and the Empire of Angels, although you can read about this in a whole bunch of different places. And mm-hmm. um, and uh, that book was written by himself, an occultist, who probably not the best guy in the world, but... Um, <laughs> So, you know... But sometimes they, they reveal the most, the ones who are the insider, the initiated. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So um, basically, the idea is this, that when man in the Garden of Eden, when we ate the apple or when Adam ate the apple as a result of Eve, something fundamentally changed on Earth. We've descended into an underworld and now we are like a fallen planet. And because of that, there is a a drive or an impetus and they they cite all sorts of different aspects of of scripture to build up this narrative that eventually the world is going to be redeemed. And in order to do that, we have to we have to take the prophecy that we have handed down to us from scripture, things like this, and we need to force that onto reality. And when we do that, we're going to get the end result of what we want. And in their view, the end result is the restoration of God's people, the um, the restoration of the the Adamic state, and sublunary literally means below the moon. So below the moon, there's something that is itself kind of revealing a lot of like occultist kind of hints and stuff like that. But um, I think that's my interpretation of that, that these um, the arist- the the narrative that the aristocracy has been hand fed by the death cult for hundreds of years is that they are playing a part in, re- in redeeming the world and from a biblical, re- you know, restoring the pre-Adanic state, Adanic state perspective. So that's that question. Hopefully I did a somewhat decent job answering yeah, that uh, very complex topic. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So as far as uh, what knowledge has been hidden? Well, think about it this way. Um, 
if you're, if you let's, I'm going to use a relationship analogy. Let's say that you're in a relationship and your significant other has been cheating on you for some period of time. And you've been spoon fed a bunch of lies for a long time. And you kind of always knew something was a little off, but you never really, you didn't know. And then one day you walked in on them or you picked up their phone and you saw some text messages, something like that. And then the truth of the situation was more apparent. And as a result, you were able to recontextualize all that BS you were hand fed for years. And now it has a whole different meaning and different perspective. I think that's exactly the power of this hidden knowledge. They've been developing hidden knowledge about how to control and manipulate us. As I like to say, they're the world's oldest psychologists. And because of that, they've been studying human nature. They've been studying how to control us. They've been studying what we should. And as a result, anytime you study how to screw something else up, how, to, how do you break somebody? You can mind control them. How do you screw up their family? How do you make them neurotic? Well, when you learn how to do that with precision, you simultaneously discover the inverse, which is how to fix those problems. And so there's all this massive, massive, massive amount of hidden knowledge that reaches way back into history. Our, you know, out Library of Alexandria, that was likely itself one of very ancient psyop to um, and a, a purge, a knowledge purge, because frequently throughout history, you have these epics where all of a sudden all this really important information just whoop just disappears. And now we're kind of like, it's like a reboot of the mind control narrative and they're going to spin up something different. And so I think that they've been accumulating this death cult that I like to refer to them as. Mm -hmm. This death cult has been accumulating knowledge about how to manipulate and control humanity for a very long time. And they've gathered all sorts of different pieces of information. Some of it might have to do with like free energy technology and stuff like that. Some of it might have to do with our you know, the spiritual connection between our bodies and our souls. Some of it's going to have to do with, you know, how to raise your kids right so you don't screw them up. So we're going to have an absolute like bounty of different knowledge that if I if the good guys win, I think there's going to be some type of rollout of that hidden uh, information. And, and just like when you discover your, your significant other's been cheating on you, it's going to change our relationship with reality as a result of learning these things. We will have a new understanding of ourselves new understanding of humanity and the world, and ultimately a new understanding of where we should be pointing to have a better life and world for ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I Well, I think some of that is starting to happen, but I think unfortunately what then happens is, uh, I, I think it's multifaceted because you have people who, uh, you know, really can't believe it because, you know, it's like your whole world is then shattered if everything you thought right. was true is now, uh, you know, crumbling. And, but I also think what happens is because people are aware, it's like a little bit of information becomes kind of dangerous and people can be easily manipulated with having a little bit of information. So people are aware that psyops are occurring. And so they start to become very tr distrustful. And sometimes a little bit of this knowledge that gets leaked through, and I don't necessarily mean even intentionally, uh, but sometimes if it's just being uncovered, sometimes it is intentional. Um, I think that sometimes it ends up being weaponized, which is, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. So, well, yeah. Mm -hmm. well, I was going to say, just to dovetail off what you're saying that you're right. Just like um, <clears throat> there's different levels of comprehension on the planet. So some people are going to be able to jump into this, you know, this new reality created by all this released information very easily. Mm -hmm. Other people are not, they're going to, there's going to be some adjustment period. And, you know, unfortunately there's going to be some people that are probably like irredeemably broken as a result. And that's sad to say, but that might be something that happens. So I think what we're going to have a situation is we'll have 
we'll have like a tip of the spear where, you know, maybe it's people who've been studying these things for a while, you know, truthers, whatnot, will be mm -hmm. better equipped to handle this, this transition. Right. And they will act as a kind of locus of stability that will mm -hmm. slowly kind of spread out like a blossoming lotus to eventually encompass the rest of humanity. But, you know, from a psychological perspective, the good news is that, you know, to speak to the whole uh, bearing your soul aspect, um, if, if that becomes a, uh, an explicit conscious part of this process, which I think it has to, if we really want to have the proper healing we need, then right. all sorts of things can happen because ultimately the people that are probably going to have the hardest time with this, those are the people that are really dependent on their extrinsic knowledge base. And what will happen, just like when you're a parent, there's going to be a new extrinsic knowledge narrative that is going to be rolled out and they can just grab onto that one and they can use that one to help navigate these things a little bit easier for a time period. But it, it's going to be rocky. I mean, it's not going to be an easy time. So, so there you go. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, there, there's so much there. So <laughs> I think we'll probably leave it here and we'll revisit. But uh, I think it, it sounds like in the meantime, because there's going to be lots of layers to this. And this is obviously, I mean, I don't claim to know the future, but it doesn't sound like this is all going to happen imminently. Um, right. So I think that for the short term and in the interim, the best thing we can do is develop our, uh, you know, intrinsic knowledge uh, detection skills and build that, build uh, the uh, ability to to build our skills of discernment, build our our empirical testing skills, and uh, really just to yeah to question to question what you know to be true, uh, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, hundred percent. As a matter of fact, I'll I'll mention that uh, on my website, Stillness in the Storm. There's an article uh, you should be able to search for it, but if you go to uh, start and under start, there should be something called Discernment 101. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's an article I wrote. Uh, yeah, there you go. It's um, I tried to pack as much of my knowledge of epistemology and how to like mm -hmm. actually think, think critically in a very easy to understand form, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Um, in this article, it is a fairly popular article. It's one of the most popular articles on the website. And I would say if you're new to this attempt to try to build intrinsic knowledge, this is a really good place to start. And of course, there's a bounty of excellent minds out there from many parts of history that are great too. So, so there you go. Awesome. Well, yeah, we'll definitely post a link for the people to check that out. Um, I've heard this, I saw this recently, you know, a lot of people say like question everything. And I, I recently saw audit everything. And I actually, I like that better um, yeah. because that's really what it is. It's kind of like take an inventory, assess, yeah. you know, really unpack it. And it's not just posing the questions. It's really to evaluate and do a thorough audit. I think that that seems to be what we need. <laughs> so Yes, I like that. I like that. I might start using that. <laughs> right? Great. Audit everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's always a pleasure. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you, all of that good stuff. And if you have anything else you want to add before uh, we wrap up this time, and I definitely will we'll do another one in the future. So. Awesome. Yeah, I look forward to it. It was always a great conversation. Um, yeah. If uh, you want to look more into my new focus, it's the Charles Whitfield Charity for Healing the Child Within. You can go to charleswhitfield.org. Uh, we are currently in our startup phase, so there's not a whole lot to work with on that website, but we're got a lot in the works. Um, we really appreciate any support you can throw at us. Um, our mission is to try to provide people the tools to actually heal their issues. And on top of it, give 
parents and other people tools to prevent issues from happening so that we can have, ideally, as Dr. Charles Whitfield said, a generation, a single generation raised properly can end wars, it can end famine, it can end suffering in a way that we're truly on, where we'll be shocked at how easily it can happen once we just start applying the right tools in the right way. So you can check that out, charleswhitfield.org. Um, I also, uh, I have a news site, Vigilant News. You can go to vigilant.news. Um, my partner over there, Ryan Delarm, he writes fantastic content. He's been really filling it out um, over the past few weeks. So we're going to be a lot more active on there too. You can also go to Stillness in the Storm. That's my older site, but it's still a lot of great stuff on there. Uh, that's where that sermon article was. And then lastly, um, I have my... I have three shows on Badlands. One is on Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's the Vigilant News Show with Ryan. We do kind of a news grab bag discussion, interpretation of current events kind of thing. I have Knowledge Based, which is tonight on Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And then on Sunday, we do interviews or deep dives at 3 p.m. And you can find all of that by going to Badlands Media on Rumble or badlandsmedia.tv is the website. You can go to find all that great stuff. So. Thanks again for having me on. Awesome. I very quickly want to say about what you were saying about the Charles Whitfield uh, organization is I think that's so true because and we can see that from Project Monarch, right? They mm -hmm. intentionally traumatize children. They do it intergenerationally. And it yeah. is a way to uh, induce mind control to enslave people. Uh, and really to just to, to trap them, to control them. And uh, if people are healthy, and I, I think part of being human is you will experience trauma because you don't even have to have something really devastating happen to you. It's really more about your yeah. part of humanity and human experience. However, if we uh, can mitigate some of this uh intentional or just destructive, which is a byproduct of this chain of having been traumatized and having been controlled and manipulated, so many things would disappear and dissipate. I, I really believe even things like illness would be in a much, you know, we still bombarded with poisons. Uh, many people know the original uh, virus meant poison. And I think we're still bombarded with tons of those. Um, however, trauma, you know, there's a book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score, and we, mm. we trap so much in our bodies and manifest things physically, right? Democritus said all disease starts in the gut. And of course, there's the mind-body, the mind-gut connection, the, the brain-gut access. So that I, I just wanted to add to that, that yeah. I, I think it's so true. It's such an important, powerful mission. And of course, whatever we can do to make the next generation of children experience less suffering than we have, then the, the better we all will be. So yeah, thank you 100%. for doing that. Beautifully said. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. <laughs> so well thank you so much and thank you everyone for uh watching and listening and uh to be continued until next time much love to This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.